Good morning, everyone. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Uh, my son, Aiden, loves fishing. So I'd like to start this morning with a, uh, a fishing tale, kind of a fish story, sort of. <laughs> uh, it comes to us from church history, and it's an image you sometimes see in church art, an image of a sea monster, the Leviathan. And this huge and terrifying Leviathan is kind of tossing around in the waves of a great sea. And up above this sea is a great starry orb, which symbolizes heaven and the very presence of God. And from the heavens, coming down toward the sea, is a line, and it's a fishing line. And on the end of the line is a hook. But the hook is in the shape of the Cairo, which you may know is the early Christian symbol of Christ himself. In some of these images, the Leviathan's jaws are opened wide around the hook, as if in his greed, he's just about to take the bait. It's a very dynamic picture. I don't think I'll ever get a tattoo, but um, if you want a cool tattoo idea, there's one, there's one to think about. Uh, so God is going fishing, and he's going to catch this giant sea monster, the Leviathan, the devil himself. And to catch the devil, he's using as his bait Christ. What's going on here? <laughs> well, this picture is illustrating a way of understanding what God accomplished in Christ, in Christ's incarnation death, and resurrection. And this way of thinking about it goes back at least to the fourth century theologian Gregory of Nyssa, who was from Cappadocia in what's now Turkey. Other theologians would pick up on it later on. But I think Gregory of Nyssa was the first to use it. And Gregory of Nyssa described it like this. From all eternity, God had decreed that he would save the world by his son that he would raise his son up to the highest place and give him all honor and glory and dominion. But now the son of God has appeared on the earth as a man, as a weak and vulnerable human being. And the devil thinks, this is my chance. He's weak, he's human. I'll kill him now. And then we'll see what comes of God's eternal decree. And so the bait on God's fishing hook is the man, Jesus, Christ in his human nature, so vulnerable and so tempting for the Leviathan. And the Leviathan takes the bait. He swallows it up and kills Jesus in the cruelest and most shameful death imaginable. But hiding behind the bait is the hook. Christ is not merely human. 
He is also at the same time fully divine. So when the sea monster, the devil, swallows up Jesus in death, death cannot hold him. The divinity of Christ bursts through the grave and Christ is raised from the dead. And so the devil is caught with the hook of Christ's divinity and death itself is exploded. The devil is defeated once and for all. Gregory of Nyssa says this, the deity was hidden under the veil of our nature. That's the veil of Christ in the flesh. So that as with ravenous fish, the hook of the deity might be gulped down along with the bait of flesh. And thus, life being introduced into the house of death and light shining in darkness, that which is diametrically opposed to light and life might vanish. For it is not in the nature of darkness to remain when light is present or of death to exist when life is active. Praise be to God. Isn't that a good fishing story? In our Old Testament lesson today, uh, the story of Joseph being sold into slavery, we find something similar going on. Joseph's brothers think they can subvert God's decree by getting rid of Joseph. The story begins with Joseph's dreams, and our lectionary skips over them. <laughs> it jumps straight from verse 4 to verse 12. But the dreams are crucial to understanding not only this chapter, but the whole rest of the story of Joseph, which begins here and goes really to the very end of the book of Genesis. So I'll read to you a little bit of the part the lectionary skips. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. And then Joseph has another dream in which the sun, the moon, and the 11, star and 11 stars bow down to him, his 11 brothers, and even apparently his mother and father. The brother's jealousy is very understandable. Reading Genesis, and really much of the Old Testament, is often an exercise in watching how sins are passed on from generation to generation. Here we're seeing not just the brother's own jealousy and bitterness. We're seeing the effect of Jacob's favoritism for his wife, Rachel, who he loves more than his wife, Leah, or his other concubines. And now he also loves Rachel's children more than the children of his other wives. Jacob himself had already suffered as the less loved son of his father, Isaac, who had preferred Jacob's older brother Esau to Jacob. But now Jacob is doing the same thing to his, that his own father did, and it is wreaking havoc in his family. 
We already know from the story of Dinah in Genesis 34 that Jacob's sons are violent and quick-tempered men, and we see more of that here. This is a very messed up family. But the story that's beginning here, the story of Joseph, is going to be the story of the healing and reconciliation of these sinful and dysfunctional family dynamics. We're going to see Jacob's sons, not just Joseph, but all of them, grow in maturity and wisdom through the events that follow. Joseph himself doesn't come across very well in early on in this story. Verse 2 tells us that he brought his father a bad report about his brothers, something younger siblings have always been doing, apparently. (laughs) And now he, maybe foolishly, relates these dreams to them, dreams in which he rules over the rest of them. It seems like Joseph's a little bit of a tattletale and maybe a little bit of a spoiled brat, too. And in his immaturity, he's lording over his older brothers, his status as the favorite son. So these dreams are, that Joseph is having are poking at what is already a very sore spot in this family. And yet, as true as all that might be, Joseph didn't make up these dreams. They are from God. Through these dreams, God is declaring to this family what he is going to do. He is going to raise Joseph up to a seat of great power, and the rest of the family is going to bow down to him. God wants this family to know, and he wants us to know as we read this story, that the events that are going to unfold in the following chapters are not random. They are not coincidental even though they are going to seem random and coincidental at times. But these dreams show us that it is God who is orchestrating all of these events to accomplish his own purposes. So God speaks his word of prophecy to this family. It is not a word that the brothers or Jacob want to hear. It makes the brothers even more bitter and angry. It says that the brothers hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. So then uh, Jacob sends Joseph out to check on his brothers, where they're out far from home, grazing their father's flocks. And they see him coming a long way off, and they think, here's our chance. We're isolated out here. There's no one else around. Joseph is alone, weak and vulnerable, and outnumbered. Here comes that dreamer, they say. Which, by the way, shows us how much those dreams are just sticking in their, in their craw. Come now. Let's kill him. Throw him into one of these cisterns. And we'll say that a ferocious animal devoured him. And what else do they say? Then we'll see what will become of his dreams. The brothers understood that dreams were a common means of God communicating to his people, especially in those days, especially in that family. They had heard God's prophecy, even declared through their hated younger brother. But just like the Leviathan in the sea, 
they thought they saw their chance to subvert and spoil God's word. And they took the bait. Now, they don't actually kill Joseph. They end up selling him into slavery. It's in one example of the many coincidences, in scare quotes, in the Joseph story, that these Ishmaelite merchants just happen to come by right at this moment. And there is divine providence in that. It is God, ultimately, who is sparing Joseph's life here. But for the brother's purposes, this is as good as killing him. Selling Joseph as a slave into far-off Egypt was like erasing him. He was gone. The great irony here is that in trying to subvert the prophecy of Joseph's dreams by getting rid of Joseph, the brothers are actually unwittingly helping to bring the prophecy about. It reminds me a little of the old Greek tragedy, Oedipus the King. When Oedipus is born, it's prophesied over him that he will grow up to murder his own father and marry his own mother. Horrified, his parents try to get rid of him, and he grows up far from home, where he is adopted by another family. Uh, Oedipus later hears about this prophecy about himself, and thinking that his adopted parents are his real parents, he leaves them so that the prophecy can't possibly come true. And on his travels, he happens across his real father, who, of course, he doesn't know. They get into a dispute in the road, and Oedipus kills his own father without knowing who he is, and subsequently marries his own mother, who's now a widow, also without realizing it. In their efforts to avoid the prophecy coming true, both Oedipus and his parents actually help it come about. The same was true of the devil in our opening illustration. He thought that by killing Jesus, he could sabotage God's promise that Jesus would be set over all things in great glory. What the devil didn't know, what he was incapable of understanding, was that it was through weakness and death that Jesus would be raised to glory. The death that the devil thought would be great Jesus' great defeat was, in fact, the very means by which God was accomplishing what he had always said he would do. The devil swallows the bait of human weakness and is destroyed by the power of God. Because in Jesus, those two things have been brought perfectly together. In other ways, too, the Joseph story prefigures Jesus. Like Joseph, Jesus is sent by his father to go among his brothers, the human race. But also like Joseph, Jesus' brothers hate him and reject him and betray him for pieces of silver. Like Joseph, Jesus is stripped of his robe and descends down into the pit. But also like Joseph, Jesus is raised up again and set at the right hand of power and authority. Like Joseph, Jesus' brothers will finally fulfill the prophecy and bow down to him. Like Joseph, Jesus too will finally be reconciled to his brothers. And he will then use his position of power and authority 
to bring blessing to the entire world, just as Joseph's management of the grain in Egypt saved the nations from famine. In all these things, both in the Joseph story and in the story of Jesus, we see the hand of God at work, accomplishing just what he had promised he would do. As Joseph himself will tell his brothers later in Genesis chapter 50, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. And our psalm this morning, which tells the Joseph story, picks up on this theme. Until his prediction came to pass, it says in verse 19, the word of the Lord tested him. God never accomplishes his plan by coercing people into doing what he wants them to do. Instead, he works amid our sinfulness and dysfunction, even using it to his own ends. Joseph's brothers thought that they could take advantage of an opportune moment to kill him and to assuage their own jealousy and anger. But God had something much better in mind. Not only does God use Joseph to save the nations from famine, he does something that seems even more impossible. <laughs> he does bring about the reconciliation between Joseph and his brothers. At the end of our Old Testament reading this morning, any reconciliation between Joseph and his brothers seems entirely off the table. For one thing, Joseph is as good as dead, <laughs> sold into slavery in Egypt. That they will ever even see each other again is a thousand to one chance. But even if the brothers were to see Joseph again, reconciliation is unthinkable. It seemed difficult before. It is impossible now. But God will use the very suffering of Joseph and then of the brothers to humble them, to break them down, and prepare them for a reconciliation that otherwise could never have happened. God is at work in all these circumstances, not only to reconcile them, but first to form them into the kinds of people who can be reconciled. The story of Joseph in Genesis is a masterful piece of storytelling. Uh, the great Jewish novelist, Isaac Bashevis Singer, considered it a perfect story. And the Russian writer Tolstoy called it the best he had ever read. So if you find yourself with an hour or so free sometime soon, I hope you'll sit down and read this story, just from Genesis 37 straight through to the end of the book. But what makes it such a good story is not just its literary qualities, however impressive they are. It is a story, really, about the sovereignty of God. And the sovereignty of God is ultimately working toward one great and final purpose, the redemption of all things through Jesus Christ. It's a story about the fish hook of divine providence hiding in the weakness of human flesh. God often seems hidden in this story, more than in the previous stories in Genesis. Joseph never speaks directly with God, like Jacob or Abraham had done. 
The action of the Joseph story seems to be more driven by human choices, often selfish or ignorant or fearful. And yet the narrator of the story skillfully shows us that God is still at work in all of this in the ways the characters are usually unaware of to accomplish his good purposes. Is the same any less true of us today? Are our own choices, our selfishness, ignorance, or fear any less part of God's sovereign plan than theirs were? Is God still at work in the world today to bring about reconciliation and peace and great blessing? He is. He is. Is there anyone you are not reconciled with? Are there relationships in your life or in our church that feel hopelessly broken or blessing seems far away? I can think of some. We cannot, by our own mistakes and sins and weaknesses, subvert God's promises. We cannot ruin his plans. If we are called according to his purposes, then he will work his good purposes in us. Think about all the times in Joseph's story when he must have felt completely helpless. When he was down in the bottom of that pit. When he was in that train being taken by the traders down to Egypt as a slave. Or later when he was falsely accused in Egypt and sent to prison. The sovereign hand of God seemed nowhere in sight. It was just human weakness, and human sin all around. Maybe you feel like that today. You can't imagine how God is going to work in your circumstances for good. And we have to be honest and say that often we don't get to see God's full redemption in this life. We die in faith, never having received everything that was promised. But we just read Joseph's great summary of this whole story when he said to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. St. Paul echoes this in Romans 8 when he writes, we know that in everything, God works for good for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, to be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. If you've been baptized into the church of God, that's you. We are the ones he foreknew. We are the ones he predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. In the weakness of our human flesh, he has hidden his own divine life. 
Now to him who, by the power at work within us, can do infinitely more than we can ask or imagine. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations, forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.